Thanks, Bryce. It's great to be with you, um, Elkins Alliance Church. And whether you know it or not, you guys have been blessing our family. You might not know me or my wife, Sarah, or our three boys. I think I need to make you guys stand up, don't you think? Yeah. All right, get your handsome young men. Right, guys, would you stand up? And Sarah, too. So say hi. Just can you say hi to everyone? Jackson's like, no. <laughs> this is my family. My wife, Sarah, Andrew, Asher, and Jackson. We have three boys. Um, that's not how we planned it. That's what God said, all right? So, but we love them. And our, as you can imagine, our house is quite the action place. And so we, we're thankful for outside, outdoors, you know, because in warm weather when we can have it. So, um, yeah, hopefully I can occupy the attention of even the younger ones. And if you would be watching me teach around 10 years ago, this would be the case because I was, uh, it was around 10 years ago, I was in a marriage class teaching and it was one of the first times I had the opportunity to teach. I was in seminary at that time. And I remember right where I was teaching. I was in Philippians 2. And I was talking. And I was up there in front of this class. It was just about 20 people. And I realized something. I'm boring. It just came to me. And, you know, you have one of these out-of-body experiences, right? And I'm Phil's talking over here. And I kind of walked over here. And I looked at me and said, oh, no. I am boring. <laughs> and then I'm back here, I'm like, and I'm seeing this one guy fall asleep over here, you know, and this other guy's staring in the back at me like, man, this guy's boring, and he, what he's teaching doesn't make sense, and I'm just like, I'm having all these thoughts, and my mouth is still moving, right? And the next thing I know, I'm starting to get dizzy. This is, no joke, this happened. And the last thing I remember is saying, I feel dizzy, I literally passed out at the front of this classroom. And uh, fortunately, there was a guy in the front row who caught me before I hit my head on the floor. And you know, I woke up, I don't know how long, it seemed like forever, just out of a dream. And it, that's not one of the dreams you want to wake up from. And I look around, I'm like, no! <laughs> I got more exciting, but it was my worst fear ever, you know? And uh, Sarah's crying over in the third row, like, he's dead! You know, he just died. And I was like, can I finish, please? And they're like, no, you're done. You're done. And so hopefully I don't have a repeat, you know. But, yeah, catch me if, if need be. But, no, it's uh, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? And I remember thinking, here I am. I'd done four years studying Bible, and I'm in seminary. I'm supposed to be preparing to be a pastor, and I can't even stand up in front of people without passing out. And uh, I think it was part of a lesson that God wanted to teach me. Because it's not about me. And it's not about us, is it? It's about our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus, who changes our story, who has a desire to change our story. And I know um, that this heartbeat is at the center of Elkins Alliance Church. This is who you guys are as a church. And you may know it, you may not, that recently you actually have partnered with me and our church on mission. Um, your youth have come the last two summers and taken part in something called Reach Mansfield. Anyone heard about Reach Mansfield? Yeah, you guys have prayed for. And uh, believe it or not, you know, my church, Berean Baptist, we started Reach Mansfield about six years ago. And it was just our church and just a few dozen high schoolers trying to serve our community. And then COVID happened, and we didn't do it for in that year. And coming out of COVID, I'd built a relationship with a lot of youth pastors in our area, and everyone was like, well, we can't book tickets right now. The borders are closed. What are we going to do for missions in the summer? And I said, hey, well, why don't we do reach Mansfield and do it all together? 
And you guys surely heard about this and, and Bryce, and they said, hey, we'll be part of that. We'll come from Elkins, West Virginia and go to Mansfield, Ohio. And we had, uh, I think, 14 churches that first year. This year, it was 18 or 19 churches participate, around 170 students just impacting our community. And so you've actually sent from this church missionaries to our town as students and, uh, and really blessed us in so many ways. And uh, so we are partners in ministry. Isn't that cool? And so thank you for participating in Reach Mansfield. It's been, and I think I've told Shirley this a few times, it's been one of the greatest blessings of my seven years in pastoral ministry to see God's church, capital C, come together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to impact their community by showing love and service. That's what we need to be about. And I'm so glad for the opportunity just to share with you. And I hope my heart would be just that I'm a blessing to you. And I'm just a little bit of wind in your sails because God is doing something here that is significant. And I think every one of us, if, and I love how you have the microphones and allow the sharing, if we were honest, God is at work in our lives or seeking to be at work in our lives. He's seeking to redeem our story. And that's kind of the main idea I want to jump into today, this idea that it's never too late for God to redeem your story. It's never too late for God to redeem your story. You believe that? We believe that, church? I hope we do. I hope that's our hope. I know a guy that his life story illustrated this. His name was John. He grew up in a Christian home, like maybe many here. Um, His mother was very intentional, discipling him, teaching him the word of God. But she died when he was only seven years old. His father traveled a lot for work. And as you can guess, it was a recipe for maybe a lot of rebellion, anger, bitterness in his life. He started getting into substance abuse. He lost his first job because he lost control of himself. He found himself in the military but ended up deserting. It's like his tracker just keeps getting worse. He got caught up in the wrong crowd and ended up working in a global trafficking ring. On a transport sea, though, with a, he saw a fellow trafficker washed overboard and feared for his own life and found himself crying out to God. There wasn't an overnight change, but little by little, the course of his life adjusted. The course of his life changed. He started going to church. He started getting involved. He even started leading a Bible study. And after a few more years, he resigned his job and began being a pastor in this church. And he had an amazingly fruitful ministry. He then started working to combat human trafficking through his writing and speaking. The same things that he was working for, he started working against. His church's Thursday night prayer and worship gathering became world-renowned, and the worship songs he wrote have been remembered now for almost 250 years, including his most famous song and hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton's life demonstrates this reality that Jesus is about redeeming lives. And it's never too late for God to redeem your story. Do you remember thinking you were too far gone? You'd gone back to that sin one too many times. You lost it. You blew up on your spouse again, on your kids again. You failed as a mom, dad, son, daughter, employee, grandparent. Well, you're in good company. Because you're sitting in a room full of people who are in need of redemption. Amen? 
in need of God to redeem our stories. We're all in need of the same thing, God's amazing grace to turn our story around. It's never too late for God to redeem our story. And God actually, I believe, finds glory in using sometimes the most unlikely ones of us to redeem, to make his name famous. And so if you think you're the furthest gone, or maybe your friend, your son, your, your coworker, your child, maybe they're the miracle story that God wants to work, and maybe you could be part of that. It's never too late for God to redeem their story. And maybe you need to hear this personally today, because maybe you're down and defeated. And the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, is after you. Or maybe you have a friend or son, a daughter, a parent, someone in your life, and you say, oh, man, I want to pray in faith that God redeems their story today. And I'm going I'm to seek to say, God, what do you want me to do to be used by God in this person's life? We're going to look at someone who I believe in God's word illustrates this reality. And um, if I had to bet, you probably haven't heard a whole sermon on this individual. His name is Judah. Judah, okay? We hear a lot about Abraham, you know, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jesus, right? Mo, you know, Moses, Joshua, but have we really looked at the life of Judah? And I think there's a reason we don't. It's because it's a little bit of a train wreck. And we're going to see that today. And we're going to jump to, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis. We're going to start in chapter 38. Um, but I'm going to kind of run through a little bit of this person, Judah. And you obviously know in the book of Genesis, we've had creation. And then we've had the fall. And then we've had the flood. And then we see these patriarchs enter in. And we work through these patriarchs, and God calls them out of, you know, from their land and to the promised land of Canaan. You have Abraham, then you have Isaac, and then you have, you know, Isaac has the twins, right? And uh, Esau and Jacob, who we know also as Israel. And Jacob has a lot of sons. And that's where we kind of kick off in Genesis. I'm going to just summarize a little bit, and we'll be in Genesis 37 and 38 here in just a second. But... In 29 is the first time we see Judah's name mentioned, and we find out he's the fourth-born son. Any fourth-borns in here? Any fourth-borns in the room? Yeah, you got one, two, yeah, a few fourth-borns, yeah, three, yeah. Um, he's the fourth-born son of the unloved wife who was named, who remembers? Leah, right? The fourth-born son of the unloved wife. So right from the beginning, <laughs> you have some insignificance from his birth. Okay, we see right off the bat that he was full of hatred. Genesis 37, verses 18 to 20, it says, He hated his brother, Joseph and uh, Judah and his brothers. They hated the favored one, Joseph, right? So he was full of hatred. This Again, this is like if you just did a word search and look at Judah, he's like, okay. He's kind of like the fourth born of the unloved wife, Leah. He's full of hatred. Um, so much so that if you look at verse 18, Judah and his brothers, they saw Joseph from afar. You remember the story. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Remember Joseph had the dreams about how all his brothers were going to be bowing down before him. And he was favored by his father, Jacob. And so they'd increasingly hated their brother Joseph. And so Judah, along with his brothers, are like, hey, here he comes. Let's kill our brother. Ever thought about killing your brother? 
That's pretty extreme, all right? So again, this is, some of you are like, yes, I have. I'm, I'm looking at my son. It's just, you know, have you thought about killing your brother? Uh, hope not. Yeah, hope not. Yeah. Um, maybe you've not liked him, but they're literally saying, hmm, how do you want to kill him? You know, like they're probably coming up with ideas. They're throwing it out. Hey, what if we, you know, drive all the sheep and have him trampled? Or maybe we trip him up. Or maybe let's throw stones at him as he comes. Or let's, you know, didn't we see some lions earlier? Maybe we could lure him over there. They're, they're thinking, how should we kill him? Um, you see, you don't get to that point of wanting to wound someone, to that point of desiring death for someone without harboring hate in your heart, do you? It starts with maybe a little bit of dislike. And if you feed it, you feed it. So there... He was full of hatred to the point that he wanted to kill his brother Joseph. And, and he, I think they would have, except that Reuben, the oldest, stepped in and said, hey, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in a pit instead, okay? Leave it to the oldest, right? Come up with a better idea. Don't kill him, let's throw him in a pit. And Reuben, it says in the text, that was actually planning on sneaking him away back to his brother. And so, you know, for a minute, you're like, okay, Joseph, he, he made it away from not dying yet. And then it says in verse 25, this is still in Genesis 37, that they sat down to eat. You know, sometimes we gloss over things like that. Think about that. They just threw their brother in a pit. Okay, he's in the bottom of a hole. You know, they just decided, should we kill him? Nah, let's throw him in a pit and let him starve to death. And they're like, hey, he looks hungry down there. Let's go eat, you know? And so they're sitting over here just eating. How callous do you have to be to be in that place? Have you thought about that? How callous was Judah? He's just eating away. You know, eating away at. Not only was he full of hatred, if you look at verses 25 to 28, I think he was also full of greed. Because it wasn't good enough just to watch his brother die. He wanted to make a profit out of it. It says in verse 25, And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then, look who steps up. Our man, Judah, said to his brothers, What profit is it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, hey, there's not much in it for us, right? If we just let him die down there, we don't get anything out of this. So what should we do? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother on our own flesh. He almost like justifies, yeah, it wouldn't be good to kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. That'll be way better. You know, really he's thinking, hey, we can get some money out of this, right? Hey, this sounds like a good idea. We can make a profit. Win-win. We don't have his blood on his hands. I don't want to live with that guilt. I don't want to see him die. I want him to die somewhere else, far away from me. And I want some money in my pocket. He's full of greed, full of hatred, right? And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 Shekels of silver. Can you just picture that? Can you just imagine Joseph screams to his brothers in that moment? You ever thought about that? It's like, can you hear the screams? No, no. And his brothers are just there counting the coins. Like how much hatred was in their hearts towards their brother? How far gone was Judah? It's reminiscent of a New Testament betrayer too, isn't it? Sounds a lot like Judah. Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. See, Judas' reputation is not looking good. And we haven't even got to the chapter dedicated to Judah's resume yet. Genesis 38. And it's really strange. How many of you have done like the reads of the Bible in a year? 
You guys done that, right? And you're kind of run through, and you start the story of Joseph, one that from Sunday school we all love. We're like, oh, I love Joseph. It's such a good redemption story. This guy turns his life around, saves his people. We all know it well. And you read Genesis 37. Then you get to Genesis 38. It talks about Judah and this whole deal with Tamar, right? And you're like, what? in the world. Like, you know, did the writer of Genesis just miss something? He's just like, oh, let me tell you this random story about this loser Judah. That's what it seems like, okay? Because it is a dark story, and there's kids in the room, so I can't, I have to give some kind of PG illustration to, to explain what is happening here. So not only was he insignificant at birth, right? He's full of hatred. He's filled with greed. Judah and his sons were incredibly immoral, immoral, right? And we see that in 38. And I'm not going to read through the whole chapter, because I want to get to the redemption of this guy Judah later. But Genesis 38 basically is a chapter painting a picture of the worst moment of this man's life. Can you imagine if that chapter was written about your life? For everyone to read for thousands of years? I wouldn't like that. <laughs> like, please no, please no, you know. And this is the, the burden Judah has to bear. In chapter 38, we see in verse 2, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Now, first of all, remember his father, Jacob. Remember his father, Isaac. The great extent they went to to find a wife who was not from where? Canaan. Because the Lord said, you need to be separate. You need to be separate. Right away, Judah finds a Canaanite wife. It doesn't even name her. The passage doesn't even name her. It's a, this is a far cry from the example that his father and his grandfather set, right? And this isn't as bad as it gets. He has three sons, and it says right away he marries off Ur, the oldest, to another Canaanite woman named Tamar. So not only does he have a bad example, his kids follow in that same bad example, all right? And you know, like, bad parents can produce bad kids. This is like textbook. It's just like, man, he's just... His mistakes, he's just passing on to his kids, and he's fully endorsing it. And the text says this in verse 7, Genesis 38. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So wicked, what does the Lord do? Puts him to death. Literally, God, the God of heaven is like capital punishment. Boom. You're dead. That only happens a few times in scriptures. So you remember the one in Acts with the one um, judge or king? He's just like so full of himself as a God literally caused him to die on the spot. This, is, this guy was incredibly wicked. And then Judah gives his secondborn to Tamar, as was the custom, right? Because your firstborn needs to have some ancestors. He needs to have children to pass on that family name. And Onan refuses to have a baby with Tamar. That's my PG description, all right? And because of this, look at verse 10. And what he, Onan, did was also wicked in the sight of the Lord, so God put him to death also. So God killed two of Judah's sons. Okay, this resume is not looking so good, is it? It's like Judah is not looking like someone we want to emulate. And Judah then tells Tamar, I'm, I'll give you my third son, Shelah, right? When he comes of age, but he doesn't follow through. So now he's a liar. So he's immoral. He's a liar. His sons are evil enough that God kills them. I mean, this, he's not making the who's who of Canaan right now for righteousness, right? It's kind of like the opposite. This is like, uh, you know, Canaan's most wanted. at the, this, Okay. 
Tamar realizes she's not being provided for. She kind of, she like gets old enough. And you know, I, and I, can you really blame Judah at this point though? I mean, what happened with the first two sons as soon as they married Tamar, like God killed him. So he's like, oh, maybe this, this woman's fault, you know, not my evil son's fault. Maybe it's Tamar's fault. And so he kind of keeps Sheila away. And so Tamar sees what he's doing. And what does she do? She says, oh, well, I'll take matters into my own hands. He's out of town and she follows him. She dresses as a prostitute, puts a veil on and sits waiting for him. Her plan works. He goes into her for the price of a goat, which again, just the details that scripture has is just unbelievable sometimes, right? It's like, hey, we'll include this, right? He he paid a goat for his unknown to him, his daughter-in-law. And she asks him to give her his signet ring, cord, and staff until the goat can be delivered, just to make sure as a guarantee, right? So it's no surprise here that his sons were so evil. Why? He was. He was filled with hatred, with anger. He was immoral in his heart. He was the ringleader of all of it. And ironically, chapter 38 is not done yet. Because you get to verse 24. Three months later, Judah was told, hey, guess what? Your daughter-in-law, who hasn't been remarried yet to your third son, is pregnant, you know, by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be, what What does it say? Burn." Not only is he immoral, he's a hypocrite. Three months later, he was committing sin, the same sin. And he said, oh, she's found out, burn her. Do you see the hypocrisy, how broken this man is? And, and, and scripture is painting like a picture of this guy's depravity. That to all of us, just be like, oh. And I can see why people don't normally preach a sermon on Judah, because it's just, it's ugly. It's, it's like, oh, this just doesn't stop. And as she's being brought out to be burned alive, right? She sent a word to her father on, by the man to whom these belongs, I am pregnant. And she pulls out the signet ring, the cord. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shiloh. You see, I think we see something click here. The statement, she is more righteous than I. He's finally, I think, hit rock bottom. He's like, man, and you know, in that culture, honor, shame was huge. And even though his life was a pattern of shame, like this is the ultimate. It's like, I am, I have shamed everyone. And now my daughter-in-law is pregnant with my child through immorality. And he's just like, man, she is more righteous than I am. Definitely, Tamar had some sin on her resume too, but he, he finally gets to this point of, of owning it and saying, I am here. He's dishonored his whole family. He's demonstrated immorality, hypocrisy. He's sitting in a puddle of his own dishonor, and he knows it. He knows it, though. He knows it. See, sometimes we have to hit rock bottom before God can work. Isn't that the truth? And, and I know for us, the parents in the room, we, we desperately say, God, don't let them have to go there. Don't let them have to get to that point. But sometimes the only place that we're ever ready to listen and hear from the Lord is when we've come to the end of ourselves. You know, how many of us in this room are maybe in a place who said, man, I feel like I've been in this valley forever, but you haven't let go. What a, how would an appropriate testimony to hear today where you just say, hey, you know what? Maybe I won't live. And that moment of letting go and saying, hey, if that's your plan, God, so be it, was the most freeing thing. 
And it was such a picture of how we need, whatever that struggle is, say, God, I can't do it anymore. I need you. God, I need you. She is more righteous than I. I think it's a hint. It's a foreshadowing because we're going to see this play out in Judah's life. He realized, I've got nothing to give. It's never too late for God to redeem your story, but he can't redeem what you don't believe to be lost. It's never too late for God to redeem your story, but he can't redeem what you don't believe to be lost. And if we're still holding on to it, can God take it and make a new story? I know this church has been such a blessing to me. And one of the, just in visits here and there, and I've met maybe some of you here and there, but I remember standing right out here and singing a song, and Bryce, you were leading, it was Beauty from Ashes. And that song had never really stuck with me until that day. And I still remember it now years later. I don't remember if, remember when that song was in, but I remember just thinking, that's a neat song. And I'd heard it before. I was like, that is such a neat song, because that is what we are, just ashes. And somehow God takes our story and he redeems it into something beautiful. You know, and we've seen God use this church and specifically Bryce and Kim in our family's life. Because like many of you know, Shirley, the season of her life, was running from the Lord. And God used, especially, you know, Bryce and Kim, and he used so many different people and the prayers of people in this room to really draw her back and set her on fire for the Lord. And, uh, and Bryce and Kim, you've been like second parents to Shirley. And we are so thankful for your guys' influence in her life. And Shirley, we're so proud that you've let God take the reins of your life and he's redeeming your story. And now and you both are blessing you know, this church. And I know you guys have been a church family to them and to them. And it's, it's not one thing one person does. It's the family of God working together. Amen? And I know every one of us, I think, could name someone right now. We could come up and say, this is a name of someone. I want to see God redeem their story. And maybe there's someone in this room who say, man, I need God to redeem my story today. Well, let today be the day. Don't wait. Don't be like Judah and have to get to the point of shame and rock bottom before you let God turn it around. You don't have to go that far. Today can be the day that God redeems your story. But only he can redeem our story. I think too often we are the ones trying to turn it around. He wants us to let go and say, let me have it. Let me redeem your story. See, Judah realized, I have no righteousness to bring. She is more righteous than I. And I believe God started working on Judah on that day, but we don't see the fruit of it for years, not until Genesis 44. And if you like turning your Bible too, if you're a sword drill king or queen, you can jump over there too. We're going to be at the end of Genesis 44. But you remember, we kind of just leave Judah's story in, in Genesis. The narrative of Genesis is like, oh, hey, you know, it's like crash and burn. Boom. Okay, let's go back to Joseph and see how he's doing down in Egypt, right? And we, we see him rise to power at a second in command. He, it's not easy. He goes through slavery, through prison. But he finally rises to this place of power in Egypt. And there's, you know, and God, like he does, put Joseph there for such a time as this because there were seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And this famine is not just in Egypt. This famine is everywhere, including in Canaan. And so Joseph's family, you know, was up in Canaan, now starving to death, needing food. And they hear that some wise second-in-command king really came up with this great idea in these years of plenty to put away a lot of food. And they did. 
and you can go and buy food from down there. And so now this is the, the second trip. You remember the first trip, Joseph is inquiring. He recognizes them, and he asks a lot of questions. And he says, if you come back, you need to bring all the sons. I want to meet all of them, because he heard that his biological brother, Benjamin, had been born now, and he wanted to meet his biological brother. And so they do. They honor that. They finally run out of food. Jacob's hesitant. I don't want to let Benjamin go, because now Benjamin's the favored one, right? But he finally, because they're starving to death, you know, that's motivation, he finally lets Benjamin go. And he goes with his brothers, and, and Judah commits. He says, man, I will bring him back. I will bring him back. I promise. Already you see like an inkling that Judah's mentality has changed a little bit. You know, and he's got his family to provide for, his family to feed, but he's like, no, I will bring Benjamin back. They go down. They're before them. And you remember Joseph, I think he was a really clever, wise guy. He wanted to test and see, have my brothers changed? And he sets up Benjamin. He puts his goblet in his satchel, and then they chase him down. Someone stole the goblet, and it was in Benjamin's bag. And so Benjamin's found out. You know, obviously, he was planned, oh, I didn't do it. Yeah, whatever. You know, you were just in this king's house, basically, stole this gold. And now talk about a commotion, right? And we pick it up in Genesis 44. And he says, you know, Joseph is just like, hey, you guys can go. It's cool. Just give me Benjamin as my slave. Let me take him as my slave. Does that sound like an echo? Just a slave as a payment for you to go back. He deserves it anyways. But something's different this time. It says in verse 18 of chapter 44, then Judah went up to him. This is such a powerful moment if you see it in the life of Judah. And he says, again, the, the king, the second in command in Egypt, the greatest superpower on earth, has spoken. He will be my slave. And he, he comes up and goes up to him and says, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. You see, in that culture, even to talk to someone of Joseph's stature, you need to ask permission to speak. There's a power imbalance, and Judah's willing to risk it. Remember, much like Esther going into the king's throne room, Judah's willing to risk it, even to speak up against the king's will. And slide down to verse 32. And what do we see? He says, your servant, Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, verse 33, please let your servant... This is Judah talking. Let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You see, Judah, in one moment in Genesis 44, goes from self-centeredness to selflessness and self-sacrifice, from hatred to love from ready to take another's life for some cash in his pocket to ready to give his own life for the love of his father and his brother. It's never too late for God to redeem your story. You see how powerful that is? See Judah's 180 in his life? You almost read that and you're like, wait, wait, wait. I, this can't be right. This can't be Judah. I mean, it must be Reuben. It's got to be Reuben or, or another one of the brothers. This is Judah? He's turned this whole thing around? You see, it's never too late for God to redeem a story. See, God's favor does not depend on our resume. It depends on our redemption. And God, in the way only he can, in a poetic way, 
isn't done yet with this guy, Judah. Look at verse 49. Jacob is blessing all of his sons. as the tradition, right? In that culture, before you would die, you would give blessings to all your sons. And this is what he says to Judah. He goes by the oldest, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and he gets to Judah. He says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That sounds like Joseph's dream now. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This is verse, chapter 49, verses 8 to 10. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, that's the, the mark of a king, right, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying, first of all, that the kingly line, that the rulers of this nation, this people, will come from who? Judah. And we know that's the case. David was from the line of Judah. Solomon was from the line of Judah. It came from this line. But he's saying far more than that. The word there, until tribute comes, that word in Hebrew, Shiloh. Who is Shiloh? The king of kings. And not just Israel will bow down to this descendant of Judah. Who will bow down? All peoples. This is not how I'd write the story. Joseph would be a far better kingly line in my mind. Like, this guy, oh, he's so, he's so above it all. You know, at the end of Genesis, Joseph forgives his brothers. Oh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You're like, oh, you got it. Joseph's the man, you know. Judah's life's a train wreck. But in one moment of redemption, God says, yes, that's it. That's it. And I think God says, I think, and I don't, I don't know, it doesn't say this, but I believe that maybe just that one moment of self-sacrifice for Benjamin, God was like, ooh, I, I can use that, because that's going to point forward to a, the Lion of Judah, who will one day give his life, not just for his brother, but all his brothers and sisters, that we might be redeemed. It's never too late for God to redeem your story. And we see this fulfilled in Revelation 5. Okay, we were in Genesis one moment. Now in Revelation 5, the story of Judah is still not done, right? Because this is what it says, starting in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. This is the Apostle John. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll. Do you see that? And then just a few verses later, what do we find? You have the elders throwing down their crowns and worshiping and saying worthy. And then who else? People from every tribe and tongue and nation saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain, that sacrificed, that we might have peace with God, that he might redeem our story. It's never too late for God to redeem our story. And I believe Judah's life displays this reality, 
That even when we hit rock bottom, even in the worst of the worst, it's never too late for God to redeem our story. It's never too late for God to redeem your story or your friend's story, your child's story, your parent's story, whoever it is in your life. It's not over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over, Yogi Berra, right? It's not. For you, for that prodigal child, for that family member who you feel is lost, that person you think is too far gone, watch God work. In fact, I think God seems to delight in using weak vessels to display his glory, doesn't he? This is a meta-narrative, a theme we see out through all of Scripture. Moses, the guy who can barely talk. Go speak for me to the ruler of the whole world. David, the youngest son, will be the king. The one that was like, ah, I'm going to have all the other sons come out. Who's going to be king? Oh, David, you just go watch the sheep, dude. I want that one. I want that one. Gideon, who's hiding, (laughs) you know. Ruth, the Moabite, Matthew, the deceitful, abusive tax collector, Paul, the persecutor of followers of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can't open the pages of Scripture without seeing broken, imperfect people who are in need of being redeemed by a perfect God. And that's our story. And God's calling for us is that we be a church, that you be a church, that we be the church who says... We're not a museum for saints, but we're a hospital for sinners. And we want to tell you about the lives that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what it means to be a gospel-centered people. Not people who come because we deserve it, but people who realize we don't deserve it. He is more righteous than I. I need his righteousness because I don't measure up. And I think Paul gets at this reality that God loves to use the broken, the uncommon, the sinful, the hurting to glorify his grace and his love. 1 Corinthians 1 says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, look at this last one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Judah had no boast. But God redeemed his story. Beauty from ashes, murderers who've received mercy, betrayers to beloved, sinners to saints. This is our story, church. We are redeemed people of God. Amen? That is who God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just like Judah, it's never too late for God to redeem our story. There's one more hidden gem that I think I saw in this as I was looking, and um, this was through some just different times of study that God kind of showed these things to me. But as I was preparing to share with you, I, I saw another thing. You remember Judah is the fourth born, and I was talking to David about this reality, Sarah's dad. And the first one is named Reuben, which means, similar to in Hebrew, son. And so it's like 
And remember, ever, she keeps naming, Leah keeps naming her sons kind of a, a name that associates with the fact that she's unloved by Jacob. And she said, see, I've gotten a son. Maybe now, maybe now that I have Reuben, Jacob will love me. And he didn't. And then Simeon, which means heard. God has heard my request for a son. And maybe now, after two sons, maybe Jacob will love me. And then Levi, his th- their third son, means attached. And maybe now Jacob will be attached to me because I've given him three sons, three sons. And this culture is such a gift. And yet he did not favor her. And then she has Judah, which just means praise the Lord. It's like she let go finally. She's like, fine. God, I just need to let go and I just need to give you praise. Thank you for giving me a son. And again, God's like, oh, that's it. That's it. Am I not enough for you? Am I not good enough for you? You see, we can't see God redeem our story until he is enough for us. He needs to be supremely valuable to us. He is worth everything. There's nothing that I can bring. But in Christ, God brings us everything. It's never too late for God to redeem your story. We can never earn God's redemption. And I think Judah's life displays that. He wasn't good enough to be the kingly line, was he? Only word to describe that and the legacy through this lion of Judah is amazing grace. Amazing grace. Let that be what defines this church. Would that be what defines the church of Jesus Christ, right? That we are our sinners redeemed by a Savior. Let our boast be not in our buildings or our budgets, our pastors, as awesome as they are. You have a great pastor. You have a great pastor. You should be thankful for Bryce and Kim. Shirley's pretty cool, too, so... Not in our pastors or your programs. Let your boast be in Christ. And I see you have a cross right here. And that's so appropriate to remind us of amazing grace that redeemed sinners like us. Let us boast in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. I mean, can I pray for you? Let's pray. Lord, we're in need of being redeemed. Lord, I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That you plundered the heart of heaven to give us your only son. That we might have life and have it abundantly. Lord, I thank you for those in this room who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, not only through his death, but through his resurrection, we can have new life. We can walk differently than we once did. And Lord, I lift up in this room. And I believe right now, I think on everyone's heart and mind, maybe is someone who's run away or who is far from you. God, would we be a people just like you, Lord, who have a heart for the lost sheep, who would leave the 99 for the one, knowing, God, that it's never too late for you to redeem our story. And our lives bear witness to this reality that you are a gracious God. And so, God, would you 
Lord, I, I pray this year, bring favor to Elkins Alliance Church. Would they be boasting in your amazing grace a year from now of the lives that have been changed by your goodness and your grace? Lord, would you turn some stories around? Lord, would you start that work today? Lord, for those who are pursuing lives that lead to death, would you bring them to rock bottom where they have nothing else to reach for but you? Lord, for those who are running from you, would you remind them of the truths that they heard from when they were young? God, would you bring them to a place of godly sorrow and repentance and help them to hear from this church and from us the hope that it's never too late for you to redeem our story. In Jesus' name, amen.